Welcome to episode 119 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. Uh, we're joined today by our guest commentator, Kevin Kelly, the founding executive editor of Wired Magazine uh, uh, and author of a new book, the Inevitable Understanding the Twelve Technological Forces That Will Shape Our Future. I'm going to be interviewing him uh, a little later today. Uh, and then from the News Roundup, it's just me, uh, Stuart Baker, uh, formerly with NSA and DHS, uh, and Maury Shank, uh, our former managing partner in our London office uh, and still an advisor to us on European tech and cybersecurity issues. Uh, um, so let's jump right in because we've got a lot of uh, bite-sized pieces. Um, uh, uh, let me start with um, uh, the EU reaching an agreement with the big U.S. social media companies on uh, hate speech uh, online. Presumably, uh, ISIS. Although, you know, my guess is that uh, they feel the obligation also to go after uh, people who support right-wing parties uh, in Eastern Europe. Uh, um, uh, Maury, what's the uh, uh, what's the uh, gist of this agreement? Well, it's a short and non-binding agreement, and it's announced by the European Commission with Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Microsoft. And the most interesting thing about that is they're all U.S. companies that it's been announced with, and it's basically an agreement to take steps to avoid hate speech online, and basically a notice and takedown procedure and some surrounding obligations. And the hate speech presumably is defined by their terms of service so that they don't have to worry that this is uh, not exactly uh, uh, suppression of speech at the hands of the government, although it's getting pretty close. Yeah, I mean, it has to be advocating violence or advocating, you know, action against a specific group. So it, I think it's a little bit, um, you know, a Potter Stewart, I know it when I see it kind of thing. They have to have a process to take it down. So the suppression, suppression of speech would be targeted to stuff that hopefully most people would agree um, is damaging. As you said, it, 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 this is something that flows from the Paris attack, so focused on ISIS, but um, presumably will have somewhat broader effect. So I'm always wary when the Europeans do stuff like this, that they're trying to regulate my speech and the stuff that I can read as well as the stuff that uh, um, gets said or read in Europe. Uh, any sign of that here? You know, I, I don't think so. I mean, um, the American viewpoint over here in Europe is uh, the you know constitutional free speech and uh, so forth isn't very popular these days with things like Google's right to be forgotten that regulates a lot of stuff that might be your speech or stuff you want to know about. But I honestly think that um, while hard, uh, you know, strong advocates of free speech might not like this kind of agreement, the stuff we're talking about taking down is things that genuinely are objectionable. And so I, I don't think it suffers from that um, criticism too much. Yeah, maybe. I, I, you know, it's my experience. I, I, speaking as a Republican, uh, um, Republican speech in Europe is right on the edge of unacceptable politically and to their elites. And certainly when it comes out of Donald Trump's mouth, uh, I, I'm quite confident that they would be glad to call that hate speech uh, um, uh, because it well, as soon as you said Republican, I started thinking, you know, what are they going to do about Donald Trump? And Donald Trump is, uh, if he's elected president, is uh, and, and already is not going to be a popular man in Europe. So it will be interesting. I doubt it's going to have a big effect there, though, but uh, time will tell. Okay. Um, so uh, the other, another piece of news that I think is worth uh, um, actually celebrating is that uh, there used to be a split in the circuits over whether historic uh, cell tower data um, could be obtained uh, with a subpoena or required a search warrant. Uh, now, this is the data that we all give to the phone company so that it can find us and deliver our phone calls to us. Uh, and not surprisingly, the company keeps track of that. It just tells us which cell tower we connected to, by and large. Uh, 
I and it has always been Smith versus Maryland third party doctrine uh, uh, data until the Jones case and um, uh, then the Fourth Circuit had a panel that announced it was going to require warrants uh, uh, for even cell tower information. Uh, uh, that created a conflict with a number of other circuits, and uh, it was embanked, and um, the panel decision overturned. Uh, uh, Judge Motz wrote a, a good opinion saying, yeah, maybe someday we will reconsider uh, Smith against Maryland, uh, but just because this produces massive amounts of third-party data, doesn't mean that uh, the third-party doctrine doesn't apply. Uh, and so until the Supreme Court tells us uh, um, differently, we're going to keep applying Smith against Maryland to this. Uh, and so the uh, circuit conflict that had existed and suggested that the case might go to the uh, uh, Supreme Court is um, toast, and it's far less likely that the court will get this uh, uh, decision to uh, consider. Um, let's see. Um, just a UK perspective on that. Yep. The, the Regulation of Investigatory Powers Act over here has, for um, 15 years, allowed a huge range of agencies to get access to that kind of data with a very simple request. So, uh, you know, which gets to the point we've often made that U.S. laws are actually relatively restrictive on this. So, uh, the U.S. certainly isn't out of. Uh, international standards by going that way with cell site information. Yep, and and, and for those still uh, uh, subject to the uh, um, uh, the colonial uh, cultural influence of Europeans, all we're doing then, it sounds like, is following our betters in Europe uh, with this policy. That's great. Okay, um, EU, um, money laundering uh, uh, rules have been postponed, but it looks like they're being postponed in order to uh, add some some ISIS-focused uh, provisions to them. Is that, is that what's going on? Well, the, there's, a, there's a fourth money laundering directive that has, uh, is about to come into force, and uh, that's not being postponed so far as I understand it. But they were talking about adding to the obligations under it, um, some obligations relating to some of the payment methods that were used in connection with the Paris attacks, again, uh, Bitcoin, and I think some kind of prepaid cards. I don't know whether, I sh- maybe I should know this, but it's a, whether it was prepaid for phone or just prepaid bank cards or something. But broader sets of payment mechanisms that would require um, money laundering, and uh, they delayed that, I guess, for some probably, as I understand the technical reasons, that it's complicated to decide exactly how that would be reported because these money laundering ob- reporting obligations are very significant, very, so, very hard to comply with. Yeah, and, and more coming, it sounds like, and not, not postponed very long, right? Postponed until, like, July, something like that? It's not, it's, not, it's not like this is a big reprieve. It sounds like it's just time to um, uh, clean up some of the language. Yeah, like, I think it's technical and... Um, and, and once they figure out what the details will be, uh, this will be added to the panoply of anti-money laundering obligations we have over here in Europe. Well, uh, U.S. banks have been complaining uh, about uh, uh, data localization. This is in- an interesting kind of twist on the usual data localization uh, story because the data localization was something the U.S. was insisting financial institutions had to do. They had to keep their data in the U.S. because uh, of concerns that certain data wasn't easily available during the financial crisis in 2008-2009. And in order to make sure that it was available, the government was going to require that the data be kept in the United States. And then uh, uh, because of that, they had to exempt the financial sector from a bar on data localization uh, rules that uh, uh, USTR is trying to uh, add to uh, the trade deals that we're striking. Uh, And it looks as though uh, USTR has now said, okay, well, we can't change the deals we've already done. There is an exemption. Uh, uh, Foreign governments can impose financial industry uh, localization, and so can we. But in the future, uh, any deals that we haven't finally nailed down, we will... Uh, try to include the financial industry as well. I thought that was interesting. 
Um, I, I don't know yeah. what what the European rules on bank localization are. Well, uh, and I confess I'm not an expert on the banking sector, but we've seen this in um, data protection, uh, data retention. So the data retention directive was invalidated, but there are um, some countries. That well, most European countries have kept data retention rules in force, notwithstanding there being no EU directive. Um, and Greece uh, technically has a data localization rule. Um, Germany has just adopted one. So you know, the borderless internet in a number of areas is uh, localization is becoming, in some places, a legal obligation. In some places, companies are choosing to do it themselves, like Microsoft did in Germany for its cloud business. Yeah, the borderless internet. The internet going local. The, the, this borderless internet thing is so 1990s. Uh, um, it, yeah, it, it's it's increasingly. I still like to say it. Yeah, it's increasingly clear that uh, um, the technologists who told us it was inherently borderless were wrong, and that in order to uh, to recover uh, that position, they're now trying to make it uh, borderless by fiat through things like trade negotiations. That's not going to work either because other countries aren't going to aren't going to buy it. Is my guess. Uh, so we're going to end up with a semi demi borderless uh, internet um, uh, in which uh, other governments are regulating what we can say here. Right? Uh, to to pick one of my pet peeves. Uh, okay. Um, FCC uh, is getting a remarkable amount of flap from, from small cable providers to the um, House Commerce Committee saying, uh, why are you regulating ISP privacy with rules that you actually write down? Why don't you do it in that nice, informal way that the FTC does? Uh, and so, uh, you know, uh, as a critic of the FTC's uh, we know it when we see it uh, uh, and you'll know it when we announce that you violated it uh, uh, approach. Uh, I, I'm, I'm kind of disappointed to see uh, uh, Republicans uh, in the House picking up this particular stick to beat the uh, FCC with. I mean, they're obviously mad over the whole decision to regulate uh, uh, ISPs as common carriers, and they have some justification for that, but uh, uh, fighting over rules that actually tell you what you're supposed to do and saying that's a bad idea strikes me as not a good approach to uh, regulatory policy. The FTC itself came out against this, didn't they? And it's not clear whether it's a policy differential or a turf war or both. No, they, they, they had a condescending set of comments that they filed at the, with the FCC saying, you know, we know how to do this and uh, uh, we're glad to give you all of our expertise and tutelage, uh, little brother. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, so, yes, they are reveling in their, their newfound popularity with the, uh, the House Republicans. Um, uh, and so we can look forward to that dynamic right through the end of the administration, which, of course, isn't very far off. Um, oh, here's my favorite story of the week. Um, uh, North Korea, uh, you know, uh, cheerfully stealing intellectual property, apparently launched a Facebook clone for North Koreans. Uh, I, I, I forget what they call it, North Korea best face or something like that. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, immediately a teenager in Scotland, uh, uh, probably not far from you, uh, Maury, uh, um, uh, hacked it by by saying, you know, I wonder if they changed the default passwords on this thing and uh, typed in uh, – admin for the uh, username and password, I think, for password, and uh, took control of uh, the North Korean Facebook uh, for a substantial period of time. I thought that was, you know, uh, it just goes to show these guys are not 10 feet tall. They're not, they're not, uh, they're not even as tall as, as our security guys. Uh, uh, the, the problem is that uh, nobody's security is good. But if we can just start exploiting how bad their security is, uh, we can do a great job of uh, both embarrassing them and attributing their attacks. Yeah, I guess we're we're allowed to feel a little bit of Schadenfreude for this one um, after after the Sony attacks, which people seem to have concluded did come from there. So um, I won't say what goes around comes around because this seems to have been a, a small site, but. Um, 
but it, it, it's a little bit funny. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a it's a black eye, and and uh, and uh, in any event, it's it's just fun. Uh, so um, I promised uh, that in the last few minutes of this, I would uh, uh, see if I couldn't introduce politics and sex uh, uh, to the uh, to the podcast. So uh, we should start a, a feature in which I talk about my pet peeves, uh, mainly when I have time over the weekend. I I start writing Twitter uh, uh, and. And uh, conspiracy posts. So uh, here's one. Uh, Hillary Clinton's emails. Um, uh, I took a look at a uh, at, at the rec- a recent story in Breitbart saying, uh, "Gee whiz, it looks as though Hillary Clinton may have disclosed the names of um, CIA employees." And they inferred that because the exemption uh, from disclosure that uh, the government was um, uh, utilizing uh, was a direct site to CIA statutory authorities to protect the identities of its employees. Uh, And uh, so whenever they took out a name and they put in the CIA's B3 CIA purse slash org uh, descriptor, um, you could assume that there was a CIA name behind that. And uh, uh, my contribution to this debate uh, was to point out that uh, it is highly probable that some foreign service hacked Hillary Clinton's crappy security email uh, server and downloaded all of the emails. So unlike the usual FOIA case where you are only disclosing what you want to, here there's somebody who has all of the emails, and now we are telling them something they didn't know, which is, uh, oh, and by the way, the name that's under this particular uh, flag works for the CIA. Uh, I don't, this doesn't mean that we're, they're breaching the cover of the particular CIA agents, because it's all employees who get the benefit of this. But uh, um, it, it strikes me as nutty to be providing additional information if we're at all worried that uh, foreign governments have downloaded these emails uh, to them through a FOIA process that is meant to protect them. So that was my contribution on the Hillary Clinton email. And kind of remarkably, uh, 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 the comments all call me an apologist for Hillary Clinton um, uh, because I said, you know, this this doesn't really tell us whether she um, knowingly violated the law, but it is something that uh, that, that we ought to fix. And um, there's like 50 uh, comments saying, well, you scumbag, she should go to jail and so should you. Um, the next story... Uh, the damage to Hillary is that people are going to keep talking about this, so you're... You're contributing to that pain for her. I well, think, she, you know, and by God, they should. should. What she did is, you know, is, I, is I utterly irresponsible. Uh, uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, so, uh, speaking of irresponsible, Vice Media has published the dumbest article of the year, and we're halfway through the year. Uh, in particular, the dumbest headline. The headline says, Exclusive, Snowden tried to tell NSA about surveillance concerns. Documents reveal. There is not a shred of truth to that uh, uh, headline. I'm not sure it's exclusive. Uh, he certainly, there, there's no uh, revelation in the documents that he tried to tell NSA about surveillance concerns. It's an endless article written by Jason Leopold, Marcy Wheeler, and Kai Henderson, who all should be ashamed of themselves for producing this steaming pile of uh, innuendo uh, unbased in fact. What what they really see is they've got all the uh, uh, emails that were sent after Snowden claimed that he had uh, 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 raised these concerns. Uh, and what you see is a whole bunch of people running around asking, are we absolutely sure that we only have this one email where he asks a, an academic question? Please check again. Go back and look at this. Uh, and uh, what they found is that uh, he had a few other email exchanges with people in the government. Uh, and talk about burying the lead. Uh, the story they don't follow up is there's an email in which uh, uh, Edward Snowden says, my girlfriend, live-in girlfriend, has just 
been invited to participate in a pole dancing contest in China. I, and I want to know if she can go. Is that okay? And, uh, the, the security officer says I discouraged him. I, that's, that's the story. I want to know, you know, how into pole dancing are the Chinese? This was the sixth annual. Uh, was this a, 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 um, uh, an effort to give him an excuse to go to China. I, I, you know, there's all kinds of questions. And of course, these guys so intent on making their ideological uh, uh, point uh, uh, just pass over it in silence. All right. Last uh, uh, story, I think, just about the last story, um, uh, just to bring a little more sex into it, is uh, there's a guy named Jacob Applebaum. Jacob Applebaum is famous for having released the ANT ca- uh, manual or catalog uh, in which <clears throat> all of NSA's favorite tools for compromising uh, uh, hardware and software were put in a catalog and uh, made available to other parts of the agency. And he disclosed it, uh, probably uh, set human rights back uh, uh, three years because, of course, foreign governments that want to oppress their people immediately said, oh, you can do that? I want one of those. Um, uh, but in a bitter, nasty uh, um, a speech full of four-letter words directed at the U.S. government, uh, um, and he is he's very close to – he's been close to Snowden, close, close to Laura Poitras, uh, um, and remarkably was being paid by the U.S. government's contributions to the TOR project for years uh, uh, and uh, was in a, a, a position of responsibility at the TOR project until like last week when he stepped down and it now appears he stepped down because of pretty substantial allegations of uh, sexual harassment, uh, which led me to tweet, what, you know, first Assange, now Applebaum, what is it with these guys who want to disclose people's secrets uh, uh, and sexual harassment? What's the connection? And uh, and then it turned out that one of the stories about Applebaum was exactly that, uh, that he had spent a substantial amount of time following this other uh, uh worker around uh, trying to figure out who he was sleeping with and uh, 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 then disclosing who he was sleeping with in an effort to get a threesome with them. Uh, uh, And uh, uh, it's pretty obvious that he thinks of disclosure as an opportunity to exercise power in utterly illegitimate ways. Uh, And so it's not surprising that that he is cheerful about disclosing the secrets of organizations he doesn't like because it's just part of a pattern of exercising power through illegitimate disclosure. So uh, that's my story. I, it, it's it's worth asking how it is that the U.S. government uh, is still providing much of the funding for the TOR project where 98% of the traffic is probably criminal uh, and where the employees are not exactly uh, uh, folks that you would want to take home to mom. Um, but that's, uh, uh, that's it. Uh, other, I'm, I'm just about done. Oh, the Fed, <laughs> 50 breaches between 2011 and 2015, including instances of espionage. How is it that the Fed has managed to have 50 breaches? Uh, uh, that's just, it's just bizarre that uh, um, uh, you have to find that out with a FOIA request as opposed to uh, uh, having the Fed announced its breach just like everybody else uh, um, uh, as as roughly 50 states uh, uh, require. So uh, it that's depends. It. it may mean... Go ahead. It may depend what, how a breach is defined. You know, maybe it means somebody losing a laptop constitutes a breach. Well, some of them they said were, were, or, es- were cases of espionage. Uh, that, that's hard to, uh, to kind of wish away. Yes, agreed. All right. Well, thank you, Maury Shank, uh, for doing this. Uh, hopefully, we'll have a few more people uh, back with us uh, uh, next uh, next week. Uh, uh, and uh, look, uh, I'm going to turn now to the interview with Kevin Kelly, uh, um, uh, the author of The Inevitable. All right. Well, Kevin Kelly, um, I think the first time I crossed your path except as a fan because I've read your stuff over the years uh, was uh, right after you had started uh, Wired Magazine and Wired 
published uh, my defense of the clipper chip in uh, what we thought was the great crypto war, but which turns out just to be crypto war, World War One. Um, and uh, what I remember about it is that Wired uh, dutifully published the the article, which was still uh, you know it's still pretty timely, uh, uh, and then put a snarky title on it, uh, 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 which was. Uh, uh, don't worry, be happy why Clipper is good for you. Um, uh, but uh, uh, you had started Wired Magazine. You were a co-founder of Wired Magazine. Uh, and you've been really contemplating the future in persuasive ways since the, I guess, the 80s, right? Yeah. Um, I first went online in about 81 um, with some experimental online communities that were really not open to the public. There were, one was The first one was run by the New Jersey Institute of Technology. Huh. Um, and then li- later on in the mid-'80s, um, helped found The Well, which was the first public access online community. And we also did the first Hackers Conference. And later on in the 80s, I did the first VR virtual reality Cyberthon, which was a, 20, a 24-hour immersion so, um, yeah, the 80s is sort of when I started to hang out in technology because until that time I was kind of a, you know, I was a hippie, right? So I was, I was, I had a hippie attitude that all this technology, steam shovels and smokestacks and it was all kind of dehumanizing. But something happened when I plugged my computer into a phone line the first time. There was this other, more organic thing this other face to technology that became visible. And as I got to know that side of technology, I became more and more convinced that this was the most powerful level lever in our society and that it was, it was, you know, coming on strong and I had been kind of following it as it has both overturned the old and enabled the new. Well, that's uh, you know that's that's another thing we have in common. Uh, we're both ex hippies, uh, uh, and uh, um, and I have to say you you you. Uh, and we should I should plug your book. Uh, it's called The Inevitable: Understanding the Twelve Technological Forces That Will Shape Our Future. Uh, and the book kind of. Um, sums up, uh, I think, a theme of your uh, work, which is there are things that technology just wants to do uh, to our society, to us as human beings, and we need to recognize that, that, that the technology is going to take us there and start to accommodate it and shape it uh, to the extent we can rather than trying to fight it or pretend that it won't happen. Yeah, so so uh, the way I would say is that very large systems of any type have have biases. They have tendencies where they tend to drift to. That if you, no matter what you do, who does it, they're they're going to move things in a certain general direction. And that's true of this technium. This is very large system of all the technologies that we have, and particularly true of the digital technologies. That independent of our own wishes, there are certain biases based on the fundamental nature of the chips and the wires and electricity and computation, they will tend to favor certain certain directions. And so my question is, my little quest is, well, what are the, what's the general drift of these things that would occur in any political realm, in any country, maybe on any planet that they, that they would be in, that's, and that if we can kind of understand what the drifts are, then that bias is actually very, very powerful. And the more our institutions, our business, our lives are in alignment with that drift, the more benefits we can, you know, extract from it, the less harm. Whereas if our if our intentions are counter to that drift, if they go against the grain, we're just going uphill and we're going to be wasting our time and um, backsliding, which is, an example of um, that I would use is like copying, uh, you know, and music, right? So the, mach- the internet is just like this world's largest copy machine, and anything that can possibly be copied, like from a movie or a book or a music, if it touches the internet at any point, it's, it'll just be copied forever. It's like promiscuous, indiscriminate, 
super conductive fluid. It's just going to flow through the thing forever. And so the music industry for, you know, three decades almost, two decades at least, has acted as if they could stop that inherent bias. They could stop that copying, the copy protection schemes and digital rights schemes and all kinds of schemes to try and say, no, we don't want it to copy. We want to stop it. We want to prohibit it. And they're just working against the grain. And they're only now coming around to accept it finally. But imagine what the world would have looked like for them, particularly, uh, if two decades ago they had accepted the fact that there is this inherent bias to copy indiscriminately on the Internet. So those are the kinds of things that I'm talking about. When I talk about the word inevitable, I mean it in that kind of loose, soft way. Yeah, but but it is, a, the, you know, the, the penalties for for not surfing are... Drowning. Uh, you're, you're either going with the wave or you're fighting the wave, and that doesn't usually work out very well. And I agree with you completely uh, in your analysis of how the music industry approached this, uh, partly because they had built their their economy on scarcity, and <clears throat> and as you right. uh, as one of the uh, um, uh, trends that you identify is accessing everything is going to be accessible and uh, uh, if you try to make it scarce you're just going to fail yeah so, so the, the general bias again of the technology is to uh, make things cheaper to make them commodities and you can and i have done this you take the graph of the prices of almost anything that you can imagine and it's on a downward slope over time or for the long term not just like a year by year but like decade by decade um, th- things are becoming c- commodities, except with a couple exceptions. And one of those exceptions, by the way, are human experiences. But outside of that, things are becoming cheaper and cheaper because they're being automated because of technology. Um, and so the, 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 there's only a very few things that are no longer abundant. Um, one of those is human attention. Um, another one is human experiences. And trust and all these other things that can't be copied. So there's, there's a small set, and I think our economy and livelihoods move to this smaller set of, uh, relatively smaller set of, of, of uh, things that aren't easily copied and aren't easily commoditized. So, so one of the things that I'm, I'm struck by, uh, even though at, at, at some level I, I completely am in sync with you uh, uh, on uh, where we should be going and where, where the technology's Pushing us, I, uh, I uh, is, you know, if if I could uh, characterize your vision and and uh, of these twelve trends, it's a it's a sunny kind of Peter Max world, and and I see exactly the same trends, and it looks to me like you know uh, the dark night uh, uh, instead. Uh, um, it, 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 Almost everything that you characterize as a trend could be seen uh, in happy terms, but it has a dark side, doesn't it? I mean, uh, uh, yeah. you, you, you talk about Absolutely. how, how, how um, uh, well, uh, I'll, 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 take, I'll jump right to the example that where we might uh, share things, but where everybody else would probably uh, view it as dark, uh, tracking. Uh, you're absolutely right. Yeah, uh, yeah, we're yeah. going to be tracked for uh, and and more and more. Uh, and yet that doesn't bother you, and uh, it actually may bother me just as much as it bothers you, which is some. But we both see it as inevitable. Uh, um, it, that's a loss of privacy. And people who purport to be great technologists in the EFF and CDT are spending all their time. Looking like the um, the recording industry fighting an inevitable trend. Yeah, so so um, there's a couple things. I'll come to the tracking explicitly just in a moment. But the other thing I wanted to say about um, the negative in general is that um, um, I think that um, all the all the bad things, all the abuses that people will do with this technology, and they will, inevitably. Um, the weaponization, the criminalization, the outlawry, the, you know, the, the, the troll, all this other stuff is going to follow exactly the same trend. Mm-hmm. So, so um, 
the, the, you know, the criminal network underground is going to use sharing and they're going to use AI and they're going to use tracking and they're going to use, uh, inter- all the, the, the flowing and the screening that I talk about are all going to ap- apply as equally forcefully that, that, that drift, that bias is true even in the negative uses of this technology. Right. So I would say that in general. So, so, you know, when people say, well, what about, you know, this horrible stuff? Yes, it's horrible. But the point is, is that even the horrible is going to be following this general same trend. <laughs> yes, that's right. So, right. Okay, so, so that's one thing. And then to, to, to this issue of tracking, which probably, as you say, many people have an immediate, well, I mean, it depends on how you, what words you want to use, right? Tracking is a little bit more neutral. Surveillance is obviously, you know, terrible. Right. So um, the, the, the larger point, though, and I use tracking because it is a little bit more neutral, is that... Um, like copying, the, the Internet is the world's largest tracking machine, and anything that can be tracked will be tracked. So um, if, you, you know, if it touches the Internet, you're going to be tracking. And some of the other trends, new technologies that I talk about, like virtual reality, are inherently completely uh, trackable or tracking. I mean, basically, yeah. over time, a VR will, because it's tracking literally all your movements, all your micro-expressions on your face, um, your emotions, how you respond to things, all kinds of things that are difficult and expensive to track in the real world. When you're in these virtual worlds, it's all being collected. Whether it's being saved or managed is another, that's the question, but it it is inherently being technologically tracked. And so... um, so it's basically it's a total surveillance world that we're surrender, you know, that we're entering into voluntarily. So that the amount of our lives that are being tracked right now are, first of all, not even obvious to most people. They really, most of us don't really have a good sense of how much of our lives are being tracked. But it's all being fragmented by different, by different uh, agencies, by different companies, by different um, parties. Nonetheless, uh, that's all going to increase for yes. sure, as we go forward. And so the question is, um, how do we civilize it? How do we, how do yeah. we domesticate it? How do, we how, make how do you it surf it a bit? That like, we how, can live with? Right. Right, right, because we aren't going to be able to stop it just like you can't stop the copying. You have to kind of work with this bias. So the question that I think we have to be asking is, what are the tools and the society agreement that would allow us to make this work. And one of my proposals, which I don't think is inevitable, but it's a proposal about how to deal with the inevitable tracking, is, is covalence, what I call covalence, which is that there's more of a symmetry in uh, the information flow so that, um, yes, the cops are filming, but we're filming the cops. We have access to what cops see, that cops have access to what we see. Everybody's accountable for what is you know, where things are, accuracy of it, and we have some direct benefits. Which yeah, a lot of these things right now don't exist. And again, what I want to say is my, my idea of covalence is not inevitable. The tracking is, but um, just as we have an Internet, which was inevitable, it wasn't inevitable what kind of Internet that we have. We have a choice about those things, those specifics. And those choices matter to us, and they're not predictable. In the same way with tracking, the total tracking is inevitable, but what we do with it is not the laws we make or not, the, the character that we assign. All those things are not inevitable. We have a choice and um, are not predictable. So, so one of the suggestions uh, is this idea of covalence. So I, I first I should say uh, your, your your term will never take off with chemists because they have a, a completely different spelling and meaning for covalence. Um, uh, but uh, by that you mean surve- mutual surveillance, uh, and I I, I I think it's a, a completely plausible uh, uh, solution, although not inevitable, as you say. And oddly, and this is something I've a point I've made, uh, if you asked where is covalence as a uh, an approach to privacy most rigorously practiced it's probably inside the national security agency where nobody can access 
uh, uh, data, uh, at least data of an American national, without being observed and reported, um, without being under surveillance. So that uh, in an odd way, NSA has tried to bring that world, because that's the only privacy protection that you can really effectively uh, administer, uh, into effect. Um, uh, It did them absolutely no good in the fight um, in the wake of Snowden, because uh, again, as you say, most people have no idea how much tracking there is, so when they found out about some of it, they flipped out. Um, but I, I, that's probably the only privacy protection we're likely to find, which is to watch the watchers more closely. Um, I worry about this. I worry that just as the recording industry did terrible damage to uh, uh, a whole bunch of unpredictable, uh, unidentifiable people with the Digital Millennium Copyright Act and a variety of other uh, efforts to stamp out copying, that bringing law in and trying to regulate privacy uh, by saying, no, you can't do this, is going to end up, since it's not going to actually stop the, the tracking, it's only going to result in... Uh, unpredictable and probably uh, biased toward the privileged uh, enforcement of the law in ways that no one would have expected when the law was adopted. And this is why I'm I'm so upset about the the privacy campaigners' uh, determination to take advantage of every tracking discovery and turn it into a law that we'll, we'll almost certainly regret in 20 years. Yeah, I mean, I mean. Uh for me, the, the the poster boy of that is is Europe's, you know, um, erasure. Law. Oh, the right to be forgotten. Uh, yes, uh, I uh, the right <laughs> to be forgotten, which is which is totally, totally, a hundred percent against the the grain. I mean, that's that's just that's simply on the wrong side of of, of any long term trend, and um, you know, detrimental in many 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 ways, and probably I don't think will survive very long, but. That's that's I think a good example of what you're talking about of, of people's eagerness to prohibit or regulate this stuff which is coming rather than try and embrace it. So my general drift of, of the book and and the other writings uh, is is that the, the way that we can steer technology is through engagement. You can't steer things by prohibiting them or stopping them. Yep. That you actually need need to is through use that we actually can find it because most of the things that are invented we don't even know what they're good for ultimately in the beginning the vendors don't know and we have to kind of steer things to their proper or their uh, optimal uh, role and that requires us engaging with them so I what I'm trying to preach in this book is is, is an embrace in terms of engaging with it using it trying it figuring out what it's good and bad for by use rather than trying to think about it what I call thinkism Beforehand, we're just kind of imagining all the things that can go wrong. That has a that has a use, but it's a very small thing. Much more, much more vital is actually to, to look at the evidence of actually what happens when we do use things. Yeah. And this kind of evidence-based idea of, of vigilance is is very different than kind of imagining all the bad things can happen because we're much better at imagining the bad than we are the good because <laughs> uh, it's more cinematic. Yeah. And so, um, uh, so this idea of kind of like. Um, uh, engaging with it and using it and using evidence based uh, for making our decisions is is um, it's not really wild out California optimism although that's what I am it's 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 this idea that um, we want to try to find out what the, the the drifts are what the biases work with those biases in an intelligent way based on the evidence and changing our minds as we go along and I think. In the end, we kind of do that, but we don't do it as well as we should. So if I if I had to pull a theme out of this book, and it's 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 nice because it's it is a little more Aristotelian than Platonic. It it, it doesn't impose uh, a single theme on the, uh, the technology, but pulls threads. But the the if there is a theme, it's that the world we're we're moving into is one where. Everything is smart and linked, but nothing is permanent. It moves under your hand. The idea that truth is in a book and the book doesn't change is over, that uh, everything is sort of negotiable and updatable and uh, um, 
subject to revision as events occur, uh, and you don't own anything because it just shows up in your hand when you need it. Uh, um, so right. this kind of very fluid world of uh, smart stuff in which the fluidity comes from the brains and the data uh, that are associated with what had been static objects you could hold in your hand, and now they kind of move around. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. There is this shift in focus where it's not really products and nouns. We have to shift to the verbs, and which is actually each of my chapters is a verb, actually technically a gerund, which is kind of ongoing verbness. Yep. And um, this idea that, that, yeah, so the shift from the from the static to the fluid, and whether it's being... Uh, the shift from, from being people in the book to people the screen, from the book to the screen, where everything is in motion, everything is, is, is flowing. We have streams of music, streams of movies, baseball walls, Instagram streams, and we have these, these bits and pixels just flowing across in the way that Wikipedia is, is flowing. It's not done, it's not finished, it's constantly an upgrade. The, the consequence of that to our culture is that we're kind of in a permanent future shock state where, where we are eternal newbies. We're always new, having to learn new things. We're, we're, in the, we're in the middle of this flow, this river, where everything is mutable and changing and in flux. And that is, um, that's the source of our anxiety because we look ahead and we see nothing but more of that change and it's uncertain. Yeah, oh, that's it's right. Unclear. Do I swipe left or right with this one? Yeah. Uh, right, exactly. <laughs> and so that, that, that permanent uncertainty can be debilitating, but I think what what I'm suggesting is we have a techno-literacy, and part of what we will learn is the way to overcome that anxiety by thinking ahead a little bit, by looking forward, by understanding the few things are going to happen, by understanding that this is the nature of technology itself to be constantly in flux, and that we can get better at this, and we may have to be taught. You know, it took us four or five, each of us, four or five years to learn how to read and write. We didn't, we didn't do it just by sitting on books right. or being near books. We actually had to apply some deliberate practice to it. And if you want to learn calculus or math, you can't just do it by hanging around math. You have to actually learn how to do it. And some of these technoliterate skills, like learning not to be anxious about this, may be things that we actually have to teach and in a you know in a disciplined practical way rather than just hope that people get by by surfing the web yeah so i i i the thing that kind of sticks with me uh, well one of the things that sticks with me in a kind of uh, uh dark night uh, uh sense is the contrast that you make between people of the book and people of the screen as we move away from books, and I've given up on that. I, 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 uh, the only book I've uh, read in hard copy in the last six months is yours because I got an advanced copy and I, I couldn't mark up the uh, the Kindle version. Uh, but uh, uh, moving away from books to screens means that you don't actually, you can't actually say, as we used to say for 500 years, this is what the book says. I can, I can cite to authority. I know what the truth is. Uh, um, people of the book uh, got that way because of their stiff-necked belief in uh, uh, what was true. Um, and, you know, it, it, it's kind of Orwellian to say, well, the book might be different tomorrow. Uh, and I, I, I'm, I'm too traditional, too tied to print to be completely comfortable with that. Yeah. So um, the, the, the there's several things about that. Um, one of them is kind of trivial, and then there's a larger one. The trivial one I'll start with, which is um, Brewster Kale, whom I think you, you sure. know is just uh, what I think is one of the great American heroes, unsung heroes. The guy who actually is backing up the Internet. Yes, exactly. There's not any government. It's, there's one guy in his little you know private money who is backing up the Internet. And he's, you know, if you ever use, you can... The Wayback Machine, sure. Right. You can actually use this machine, he calls the Wayback Machine, to go back and get the webpage any time in the past. That's amazing. This is one guy doing it. I mean, he has a whole staff, but it's him. Well, 
he also um, uh, is also um, really interested in, in scanning all the books, and he, he is actually archiving in a physical sense, like in uh, warehouses on pallets. He has, he has these several warehouses, and inside the warehouses are containers, you know, those truck containers, and inside the containers are pallets, and on the pallets are stacks of books wrapped in plastic. And what it is, is every book that is scanned, he wants to have a physical archive. He wants to have the what we call in taxonomy the type specimen. Oh, yeah. So well, it'll probably last is. longer than, than anything digital. That's the whole point. That's the whole point, is that there is, Somewhere, if you really want to go back and find it, you can look up to his tables and you go to this container and this pallet, and there is the book, if that was important to you. So there is, there is, there is a means to actually do that, to say, well, here's this book in time and this edition, and there it is, and you can check to verify. So, so there, is, there is a way, there is a technology to kind of do some of that so that you could ease our anxiety about that. But, but the larger issue of, of, of this kind of permanent flux and this sense that there is no consensus on even what the text says because it's changed, the, the solution, is, I think, is what Wikipedia has, which is a log chain. You know, is, is that you, um, I mean, this, this, is a, this is intellectually this fabulous thing that all software has, it, with non-destructive editing and all these other kinds of things, which is basically... Every change that is made is logged, and you can actually revert back to whatever time you want. And so if you have this kind of revert log, there's all kinds of names for it, um, change logs, in, in the things, you can actually go back and you know, recreate the thing to any uh, position that you want. The, 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 the trick that we have to learn how to do is to understand that everything will have one of those. And mm-hmm. When you're pointing to something, you actually have to point to a specific time and place and, you know, a, 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 a specific state, they call it. And so um, that is, the, that's an unheralded invention in my eyes because um, whatever you're doing, um, all the intermediate states are actually kept and they are referable and they are, they form part of the thing that is. It's not, the thing is, is a process. There's no, so we, we sometimes are calling about, it's not really a book, it's booking. It's a verb. Right. I'm booking. This is a, this is a booking that I have, and it's in it's one state in, in, in a whole line of states. And I could point to another state and it might be slightly different, but um, you can look at the differences, and we'll have other tools to help us do the comparisons and whatnot. So I think there are technological solutions. So this is one of the differences where uh, my optimism may shift from others, which is that, I think that most of the problems that we have today are caused by technology in the past, and I think in the future, 20 years from now, most of the problems they will have are technologies that we're inventing today. But I think the solution to any of the problems made by technology is more and better technology. It's not less. It's not, it's not taking away. It's not stopping. It's actually more technology is the solution to the problem that technology has already. So let me let me let me. I, I got one last question that I I, I have to ask, and it's a, a it's another one of my dark night questions. Uh, uh, yeah, you're you have given us the California view of the future, and I I uh, understand it and and resonate to it. But you know, the future of technology is going to be made in Shenzhen as much as in uh, yeah. Mountain View. Uh, and yeah. what's made in Shenzhen is going to be influenced a lot more by Beijing than, than Silicon Valley is influenced by Washington. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, Beijing has an idea of the future it wants, and it doesn't involve surrendering any power. It uh, depends on creating an appearance of consent of the government uh, and an, a, a sense that you know everybody loves the current government uh, and a lot of this flowing filtered curated uh, uh content especially if you don't take the time to go back and ask Brewster Kale for a copy of the book as it was originally written um is susceptible to the government uh, influencing it directly or indirectly through uh its influence over large numbers of people i uh, what do you think that the the role of governments who are quite unabashedly authoritarian means for the way these trends will play out? 
So um, I, th- I think you're, you're dead right that um, in many ways the future of technology, you know, is more likely to come from China than Silicon Valley in a certain sense. And for that reason, I spend a huge amount of my time in China, uh, around Shenzhen or the Pearl River Delta, or you know, up in um, Qingchang, wherever wherever it's happening. I, I, I'm spending enormous amounts of time in China because, in fact, most of my fans, most of my audience, is actually in China right now. So. Um, and I'm asking you, you know, what is it that you want? And there are several things uh, about it. You know, for a long time, the general view of the you know, EFF and others was that um, the Internet routes around damage, right? So that the, there was this idea that the Great Firewall was not going to work. But, of course, it actually worked pretty well. Yep. But I, I, I think, though, my, my, my sense of talking to many of the millennials and many of the government officials in China is that, my 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 takeaway right now, right this minute, is that this is not a very stable. This is not stable. Right. It's not stable for for for, for many reasons, and, and even the the government officials will later and I agree that it's not stable. That and so um, and it, the it part being this single party tyrannical government that's overseeing this firewall and it's. And I think that the major thing that will disrupt it, I don't know how it will be disrupted, but I should say that the major force against it is, is the fact that it's now hurting them economically. You know, they cannot take the next step to become a world, have world-class world branding because they have this fence around it, that not just censoring themselves, but also keeping out the competitors. And that is actually starting to hurt them. And... Um, I'm not sure how this fence just comes down, but um, there is there is a fence that they, even in the government, understand is is not stable for them, and um, so that doesn't answer your question about how this works out with authoritarian governments. Other than it's my belief, my feeling, just spending so much time in China right now, that um, there's there's there, there's the the power of technology will trump even, 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 even that what I would consider very artificial um, isolation that they've constructed. That 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 moat. I, I I think that the 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 power of the technology will will trump even that. Yeah, I you I think it's certainly very hard to maintain a moat. I, 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 but they, they've learned not to try to maintain a, a, an absolutely impermeable barrier. Instead, there's this kind of notion that, uh, well, we can flood the zone with flowing information and, uh, you know, uh, yeah. put and crap in trolls in yeah, places right, where we right, don't want right. people to go. Yes. So, I mean, they're doing all those things. And, and this is my observation. Again, I could be wrong. My observation is that that, that introduces a level of pollution of mistrust of sources that all that's just corrosive, and so they're starting to feel this corrosiveness, uh, yeah. and that corrosiveness eats away. And they realize, you know, because they're so focused on the economy, that there's an economic argument now about that. So before it was sort of just political, but now it's reached an economic consequences of that corrosiveness. And I think they're then now they're paying attention, but I don't know if it's enough to actually have the seeds of the break. I mean, I think the break. Could come for other reasons. Right. It could be triggered by other things, particularly like the environmental issues. I mean, they are basically the, the problem the Chinese have is they have they're they're rich, but they can't breathe. You know, what I mean, <laughs> yes. it's like uh, they, they're 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 all coming to San Francisco and Vancouver, buying up whatever property they can because they want it out because it's it's going to it's going to only get worse. And so um, I think you know environmentally there's there's a there's a possible trigger. So I don't know what brings it. It down, but there is this huge. There is a rising. So it's like the water level, and you have this the rising water of of economic pressure that makes this thing, I think, unsustainable to me within ten years. But you know, um, I, I'm I don't know that I don't have enough inside information to be able to to predict that. 
All right. Well, Kevin Kelly, uh, the inevitable, understanding the 12 technological forces that will shape our future. We only scratched the surface. It's a, it's a, a terrific book. We didn't talk about whether AI is going to kill us. I know you don't think it will. Uh, we didn't talk about your great chapter on the future of VR, or uh, uh, nor did we get into VR sex, which I'm sure my audience is astonished by. <laughs> uh, uh, but uh, uh, they'll have Wait, to read the it, book. It, it, is that a... It, is VR sex a common thing of your podcast? <laughs> well, you know, I, the we've already gotten into a bunch of sex on this uh, in the news roundup oh, on I this. See. So yes, uh, okay. uh, oh, okay. yeah, I think there there are probably are people who think that uh, I talk about it a little too much. Uh, uh, but uh, anybody who wants to read about that, of course, can. They just have to buy your book, which is uh, a terrific book. Uh, and Kevin, great to talk to you after all these years. Yeah, it was. It was really great, and I really appreciate and. Just today happens coincidentally be the launch day of the book, so I'm um, very much appreciative that you've taken time to uh, tell your readers about it. Um, thanks for having me on, and it was great to reconnect. All right. Well, I guess we should say we're not. This is not a podcast. We are podcasting uh, in the spirit of your book. Uh, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and, okay. and, I'm, and I'm thanking you. All right. <laughs> All right. Great to talk to you. Thanks to Kevin Kelly. Thanks also to Maury Shank. Uh, as always, the Cyberlaw Podcast is open to feedback. You can send it to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com uh, or uh, just uh, uh, log on to iTunes and leave us a good review. This has been episode 119 of the Steptoe Cyberlaw Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Coming up, we're going to be joined by Congressman Will Hurd uh, by Jamie Elizabeth Smith of Bitfury, yeah, and we hope you'll join us for those and other uh, uh, interviews as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government. 